Welcome once again to the second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I wanted to say that I hope that everyone had a good holiday. And um, before I get into things, I also want to uh, do a little bit of politicking for just a second and give a shout out and a uh, call of solidarity to uh, the railroad uh, workers who I absolutely think should go on strike uh, despite Congress, given the fact that they were completely and utterly abandoned by uh, the Democratic Party. And I think it's terrible. And I hope that they uh, are able to actually get what they deserve, which is the amount of paid time off that they require. And so, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there into the ether. All right. So... Now, let us start tonight with an update on a continuing story. Just last week, a suite of three papers dropped that explored the data that Perseverance has sent back to NASA in the last year. Interestingly, the data doesn't yet point to any evidence of sustained liquid water. Now, that's not to say that there isn't any water. Rather, that the water that they've found evidence of was almost certainly intermittent and most likely near the freezing point. Now, obviously, Perseverance is collecting samples for return to Earth. We talked about that very recently. But it's also doing a ton of on-site science that can be beamed back to NASA. The mast cameras create a stereo image of what the rover is quote-unquote seeing, and can even offer information on the wavelength present in the image. In addition, there are instruments that can look at the content and structure of rocks and hardware that, that can perform chemical analysis of materials taken from the rock. Now, the three different papers are devoted to a specific instrument on board Percy. So the the spectroscopy tool, is able to discern a sample's chemical composition, and that was the first paper. The second paper is on the x-ray tools, which can tell how the chemicals are distributed within the sample. And finally, the mast camera paper helps us to know how many rocks of the same sort are located in any one area. And so in order to... uh, really figure out what's going on. The synthesis of these three papers was put together and it really shows that Perseverance has sampled rocks from two different kinds of deposits. First, there are rocks from the crater floor and these are iron and magnesium rich or magnesium based minerals. And above the floor of the crater are rocks that appear to be volcanic. 
Now, they may also be rocks that liquefied following an impact because it's a very similar kind of uh, transformation to create that kind of rock. But neither of them have been shaped by running water. Most of the rocks have been shaped by the wind and may also have been affected by the atmosphere in general or radiation exposure. So the kinds of things you would expect from any rocks on Mars at this point, uh, where it has wind, but not a lot else going on. In addition to rocks, there is also regolith, uh, especially in the lee areas where the wind uh, kind of piles it up and debris from impacts, including some that are inside of the larger Yezero crater. So of course, Yezero crater is pretty big. So there's also other meteorite um, impact sites within the larger crater. But again, the big wonder is if there is signs of liquid water. And again, The answer so far seems to be that there is water, but it wasn't a liquid lake the way that we were hoping it had been. And so that was really what people were hoping for. Now, all is not lost. There might be other places where we do find evidence, but right now where Percy has been at this point, it it doesn't show that kind of indication. Now, the key mineral here for figuring all of this out is called olivine. Olivine in the volcanic layers suggests a lack of liquid water. And so on Earth, it's usually found pretty deep uh, under the crust because it has a tendency to be dissolved or altered when in contact with liquid water. You see where we're going here. And so rock samples from the volcanic layers show that around a quarter to a half of the olivine found in the rocks seems to have been altered via exposure to water. But the big caveat here is that the other half does not. Now, researchers suspect this is because the water exposure was not standing water of any kind, but rather the water exposure would have been either brief or in very cold environments where the water was near freezing point, near the freezing point. Some other deposits seem to have been left by cold, highly salty brines. And we've seen that in other places on Mars, these salty brines. The salt saturation prevents the olivine from dissolving. But some small deposits of sulfates have formed in some of the gaps in the rock as well. And perchlorates were also found. But again, these were most likely made by subsequent brines or deposited by the wind. Once deposited, they drew enough moisture out of the atmosphere to dissolve and then to be able to seep into cracks in the rock. And unfortunately, the bottom line is that none of this indicates a lake. We have found no compelling evidence for the costrine, lake-based, sedimentation in the crater floor regions thus far explored using the rover, one of the papers concludes. But again, this isn't the end of our exploration for a lake. The lake may have been icy and transient, 
or been frozen for most of its history. And that doesn't preclude life because as we know, there are plenty of places where the life, where life uh, lives in very extreme conditions, including near ice conditions. So there could still be microbes out there. And so the other uh, conclusion is that it may be that Percy has only explored an area where lake sediments have eroded and thus samples come from layers that were under the lake or for the volcanic material deposited after the lake had already dried up. But again, the presence of olivine tells us something else. If there was any, if there was life anywhere near the crater, it couldn't have been near the rocks that we've sampled so far because microbes would have been unable to obtain energy in an environment that left olivine intact. Now, the rover did pick up signals of organic chemicals, chemicals with one or more benzene-like rings, and this could be a sign of life, but it could also fit a myriad of other materials. And so just finding that is not good enough evidence for us to suggest that life really was living at some point in the distant past in this part of Yezero crater. Now, the other thing to remember, though, is that this is just the first data dump, and we expect Perseverance to continue to explore and sample various areas in Yezero for what we hope will be years to come. And again, or just to say, you know, it's not about finding life. It's about figuring out what Mars is like. If we were to figure out that there had been life there, that would be really cool. But just knowing what the area is like now, what it might have been like in the past, and just getting to know the history of Mars is extremely cool. Um, I will admit, I'm actually uh, sort of skeptical um, of whether or not any signs of life will be found on Mars. Um, I don't think it's very cool if they do find it, um, but I won't be surprised if they don't. So, um, you know, there's that. Uh, I think that, um, I, you know, I just have not particularly had any expectations of that, but I do appreciate that we should gather and investigate as much data about the planet as possible, simply for the joy and enlightenment it brings, like to be able to tell people about these planets that are so close and yet so far away, um, is just so cool. And, uh, as much as I am anti-human space travel, I am exceptionally pro-robot uh, and rover uh, exploration in order to learn more about uh, our neighborhood, uh, especially. And so, yeah, I think it is pretty darn cool. But let us move out of the local neighborhood to the greater reaches of space. Now, we haven't talked about this in a while, but if you're ever looking to do something fun and worthwhile, there are tons of opportunities 
to aid in citizen science projects. And one of the areas that has been doing this the most effectively is astronomy. Astronomers have always relied on uh, amateur astronomers, but now they can also pull in citizen scientists as well. Um, especially with the, uh, you know, as we continue to have breakthroughs with computing, more and more people were able to be folded into the project of astronomy. And so that is very cool. And so for this particular project, more than 10,000 amateur scientists in 85 countries have been helping map galaxies. And the researchers are now hoping to grow these numbers significantly in a project that hopes to reveal the nature of dark matter. And of course, dark matter is this stuff that's out there. We know it's out there. We know it has to be there. All of the math says it's there. And yet we don't know what it is. <laughs> um, and so as you can imagine, that's pretty frustrating for scientists and especially astronomers and physicists because uh, we know that there's something out there doing these things that affect the universe and yet we really can't tell any of its properties except for the fact that it has mass. And so, yeah, it's very frustrating. So the more that we can learn the more that the closer we can get to figuring out what dark matter is. The research project is known as HETDEX, or the Hobby Elberly Telescope Dark Energy Experiment, and is based at the University of Texas at Austin's McDonald Observatory. And it relies on volunteers who participate online in a project called Dark Energy Explorers. And so using either a smartphone or a computer, I tried it on both the other day, citizen scientists will be able to engage in astronomy while helping researchers to find and map distant galaxies. The structure and location of these galaxies, when taken as a whole, should allow for a better understanding of dark matter, the elusive element of our universe that is causing it to accelerate even though our basic knowledge of physics says that the universe should be slowing down its expansion. So basically, if you look at all of the material that is present in the universe that we can actually see um, and actually measure, that would suggest that, you know, entropy should be causing the universe to slow down. But it's not. We can tell that it's not. And therefore, again, that's where dark matter comes in. Now, the project was first released in February of 2021. And since then, more than 10,000 volunteers have identified around 240,000 galaxies. But that's only around a tenth of what astronomers believe should be out in the patch of sky that they're surveying. Now, the area includes most of the area of the Big Dipper and is around, quote, the size of 2,000 full moons. Um, if you're a regular listener, you know that I love the ways in which people try and compare uh, odd-sized things or large-sized things to 
uh, a certain number of things that you're more familiar with. Um, it's one of my favorite things <laughs> to see how people say, you know, it's like as tall as four giraffes or, uh, you know, the size of two football fields. Um, but of course, I think that one's always funny because, you know, how often do you really think about how big a football field is? It looks pretty small on a TV screen. <laughs> But anyways, I digress. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Carl Geberhardt, a professor of astronomy at UT Austin and projects scientists and principal investigator for HEDDEX, HEDDEX, uh, noted, that's why we need more people. If we can get to, to 100,000 people volunteering, which I think is doable across the world, then we're there in the next year. And so the project is run through the Zooniverse platform, which is the largest clearinghouse for citizen science projects. And I've done a couple through there before. Um, I have to say, I don't do as many as I should. I always forget that it's out there myself. So uh, if you're hearing this, we talk about this again, uh, and you haven't looked at it since the last time I talked about it, don't feel bad. Um, it's it's hard to sometimes remember these things. And so, uh, as I noted before, I tried out the program myself and it's it's pretty fun to look through and see what might or might not be there. And so you are given astronomical images and have to decide whether what you're seeing is an actual galaxy or just noise. And they do give you a tutorial. And so if you just look through things, um, you'll be able to pick it up pretty easily, I think. What's really interesting about this is that it could really only be done with the human eye and mind. Researchers have not yet been able to develop an AI that is capable of truly discerning the data from noise. So it's really interesting. Um, this is a lot of these astronomical projects are uh, put out onto places like Zooniverse because we just have not developed the technology yet to make uh, computers be able to discern what humans can discern very quickly. Um, so... That's one point for humans versus robots. Um, and so, yeah. Um, though, of course, that is sometimes worrying, especially given uh, how some people are using robots. Um, yeah. Uh, again, this is probably best left to civil politics. But if you aren't aware yet, uh, Los Angeles, I believe it was, just voted to allow their police robots to use deadly force. That should worry you. That should worry you deeply. Um, so yeah, just a, just an aside. Um, <laughs> oh, sometimes I really do believe we live in the darkest timeline. But let us keep talking about galaxies and cool stuff that we can do here and now that is free from any kind of drama or uh, 
upsetting news. And so if you use the phone app, um, it's pretty snazzy. You can just swipe left or right, depending on whether or not you think that there's a galaxy there. So that's kind of fun. It's pretty easy if you're using the phone app. It's really exciting to see how enthusiastic the public is about classifying these galaxies, said Lindsay House, the UT Austin graduate student who leads the project. And so the end goal for the project is to construct the largest 3D map of the universe, focused on galaxies in the early universe in order to discover more about that elusive dark matter. <laughs> Researchers want to know if dark, dark matter changes over time or is constant. And so that is definitely something interesting to think about. Uh, has it changed over time? That is interesting because, you know, most of what we think about in physics is it's always been that way. Um, and so to think it might have changed, it's actually quite interesting. Now, of course, as you probably know, and I think I mentioned already, around two thirds of the entire cosmos is dark energy. But other than knowing that something is there, scientists don't know all that much about it. And so the first step to really figuring out what it is, is to understand how it behaves. But in order to do that, astronomers need a huge sample of distant galaxies, which is where HETDEX comes in. The data comes from one of the largest optical telescopes in the world and should end up as a massive survey of more than a million distant galaxies. Using crowdsourced citizen scientists cuts down the time astronomers need to spend looking at raw data by 90%. That's pretty amazing. And uh, as we talked about before, the machines just can't cut it. We've tried writing computer code to do this and even used machine learning, but we found the human eye is significantly superior, Gebhardt said. We were skeptical at first, but we were blown away by the accuracy. And if you're worried about getting something wrong, don't worry. The lovely thing about Zooniverse is that it truly is crowdsourced. And so each galaxy is reviewed by around 15 people to help reach a consensus and increase accuracy. So if you are bored, you can start swiping right on galaxies. <laughs> Um, but I think that's pretty excellent. Uh, I definitely am planning on doing some more of it soon and maybe also doing some other Zooniverse, um, projects. I really enjoyed one of the ones that I did for the longest time, which was looking at camera tracks, tr camera traps, uh, from the Serengeti. And you would look at the camera trap and you would, uh, tell the, um, the researchers, you know, what you saw. Was it just the reason that the camera went off because the wind blew some grass or was it an elephant or a wildebeest? It was mostly wildebeest, let's be honest. Um, but I did see a lot of interesting things, um, secretary birds, uh, the occasional lion, uh, the occasional elephant, um, 
lots of zebras too. It's mostly wildebeest and zebras. But you know, wildebeest and zebras are cool. Um, and I saw some, uh, I guess I saw a serval once. Um, but anyways, very cool, very fun and totally helping scientists to know more about, uh, you know, the environment that they are trying to study and you get to look at cute animals and they get to learn more about, uh, Africa. That one was a lot of fun. I think it's, that one is definitely over because it was a while ago, but I'm sure there's something like that as well out there. Um, Zooniverse has a ton of different um, kinds of citizen science work. A lot of it is also one of my favorite things, which is looking at collections in museums that have just kind of been sitting there on the shelf um, and working through them uh Sometimes it's transcribing notes from people who wrote them, you know, a hundred years ago. Sometimes it's uh, looking at the specimens themselves and seeing what you see. There's all sorts of incredibly interesting and fun things that you can do on the Zooniverse platform. And there's other uh, citizen science platforms as well. Zooniverse, I think, is just the one that most people know about. Um, and so it has the most variety. Okay. Uh, let us actually take a break and do some show, show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk about everyone's favorite parasite. <laughs> it won't be that bad, I promise. Um, so yes. Uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and um, yes, just a moment for some PSAs and some show promos. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. 
In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. All right, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as advertised, let us turn once again to one of the internet's favorite protozoan parasites. I'm talking about Toxoplasma gondii. And so this is a parasite that could infect any warm-blooded animal species. And in lab settings, infection has shown to cause increased dopamine and testosterone levels with an increase in risk-taking behaviors in all sorts of mammals, including rodents, chimps, hyenas, and humans. And of course, this is most famously associated with cats uh, and their ability to uh, infect rodents, and then the rodents basically lose their ability to be uh, scared of the cats. And the reason for that is that cats are the terminal, um, carrier for, uh, T. gondii, which means that is where they need to, uh, infect cats in order to reproduce. And so, while there's been lots of work in the lab, there has been little study on the effects of the parasites in the wild. Members of the Yellowstone Wolf Project decided to study how infection impacts gray wolves within the park. They found that the odds that a seropositive or infected wolf became becomes a pack leader is more than 46 times higher than a seronegative wolf becoming a pack leader. Now, serum samples have been taken from wolves in Yellowstone since 1995. Researchers studied samples from 229 individual wolves, 116 males, 112 females, and one hermaphrodite, in order to see if there was a correlation between the presence of antibodies for T. gondii and specific behaviors. Now they note that there is a complication because the relationship between antibodies and infections is not as straightforward as we might like, as the parasite can persist at low levels indefinitely after infection. And so uh, definitely there is a little bit of room for uh, uncertainty here. Now, it turns out that while gray wolves are intermediate hosts of the parasites, uh, cougars being basically the same as your garden variety kitty cat uh, are also terminal hosts. This means that, again, T. gondii can grow to sexual maturity within wolves, but must move to cougars in order to reproduce sexually. 
Now, the two carnivores are both present in parts of Yellowstone, especially along the northern edge of the park, and they compete for prey. Now, the single biggest factor for a wolf having signs of being infected by the parasite was to live in an area that overlaps with cougars. This was more indicative than age, sex, or coat color. Wolves with antibodies were significantly more likely to disperse and create their own packs and to become pack leaders. These are the most aggressive and risky wolf decisions that can be made in a wolf's life. This has also had an effect on the pack as a whole, as a leader can increase the overall number of infective wolves, both through reproductive success and through leading the pack into cougar territory, where they can be independently infected. They also set the precedent for the pack's behavior, thus they can create a more assertive, risk-embracing pack culture even though only a few key individuals are actually infected. Now, some of this behavior may also lead to things like death, but overall, it seems to help them, to help drive them to succeed. Now, another major caveat of this study is that it lacks a control group. Obviously, when you're doing, uh, studies of animals in the wild, it's sometimes hard to have a control group. But given previous research with T. gondii, it seems to fit quite well with what we know about it. And so, you know, it's possible uh, that T. gondii is the true ruler of the mammalian world. <laughs> Um, and I mean, it's not that far-fetched. Obviously, uh, we are learning more and more about how microbes and uh, all sorts of animals that are in our uh, systems are able to affect us. And so, for instance, the uh, bacteria in your gut uh, can have an impact on your mood. And, uh, there are all sorts of, um, little tiny critters that are all over you doing various things at all the, all the time. And it may be that, uh, there is something to that. And in fact, uh, I think I, I don't want to repeat it if it's a falsehood, um, I can't remember if it's really true or not. I think it is. Uh, the idea that you are, uh, that more of the cells that make up you are actually bacteria and protozoa and other, uh, microscopic, uh, organisms versus human cells. Um, so yeah, that is definitely something to think about there. And, uh, T. gondii, again, does infect humans. So, uh, very interesting to, uh, learn more about that in wolves, which I, I guess I knew that T. gondii could do, could infect, you know, a variety of animals, but I've always associated it with cats. Um, so it was interesting when I saw something about wolves. 
All right. So let us switch now from talking about mammals to talking about birds. So a new fossil is challenging our ideas about the evolution of modern birds. One thing I've mentioned many times before is that fossils are rare, vanishingly rare. Now, many skeletons in museums uh, would potentially make you think that, oh no, they're pretty common, but most of those are casts of a single original skeleton, and most often have parts that are filled in by scientists because the skeleton is not complete. A complete skeleton of a extinct animal is very rare. So our understanding of the evolution of organisms is always provisional. And I'll also reiterate that this is not a bug, but is rather a feature of science. Science wants to be proven wrong if that leads to a stronger understanding of the natural world. Anyone who points to science changing as a bad thing fundamentally misunderstands the process of science and the fact that this is actually one of its greatest strengths. So um, that's something that is a personal uh, hobby horse of mine, uh, which is people who say, oh, well, scientists are always changing their mind. Yes, that's the point. They are constantly striving to find things that are more true than what they knew yesterday. All right, let's get to it. Fossilized fragments of a skeleton have pushed back the development of the modern mobile beak of birds to before the end of the age of dinosaurs. Researchers from the University of Cambridge and the Naturhistorisch Museum in Maastricht found the fossilized remains of the pellet of a bird that lived around 66.7 million years ago just prior to the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary, which marks the beginning of one of the largest mass extinctions to ever happen on the earth. The fossil was found in a limestone quarry near the Belgium-Dutch border in the 1990s and was initially studied in 2002. However, because the, much of the remains were encased in stone, the researchers at the time could only describe what was showing on the surface. Since this fossil was first described, we've started using CT scanning on fossils, which enables us to see through the rock and view the entire fossil, said Dr. Juan Benito, now a postdoctoral researcher at Cambridge and the paper's lead author. We had high hopes for this fossil. It was originally said to have skull material, which isn't often preserved, but we couldn't see anything that looked like it came from a skull in our CAT scans, so we gave up and put the fossil aside. Interestingly, the new scan suggests that the 1% of birds that do not have a mobile beak, such as ostriches, emus, and their relatives, actually evolved toward a more primitive form of the beak. And so the team used cat scanning to identify bones from the palate of a specimen of one of the last toothed birds yet discovered and discovered that it would have had a mobile dexterous beak that was virtually indistinguishable 
from modern birds, minus the teeth, of course. The new species has been named Genovis phenolidens, um, and would have been similar to a modern duck or chicken. Until now, researchers had assumed that the mobile beak developed after the extinction of the dinosaurs. But with this new paper in nature, it looks like that timeline needs to be revised. Birds are actually divided into two overall categories. Ostriches, emus, and other members of their family are classified as paleogenathae, or ancient jaw. And these birds, like humans, have a palate that is fused together. All the other birds are classified as neonathae, or modern jaw, and these birds have palate bones that are connected by a mobile joint that allows their beaks to be more dexterous and helps them with a host of behaviors such as nest building, grooming, food gathering, and defense. Now, the birds were originally classified by Thomas Huxley, a friend and staunch defender of Charles Darwin. He assumed that the more ancient jaws were original to birds and then the mobile beak developed later. This assumption has been taken as a given ever since, said Dr. Daniel Field from Cambridge's Department of Earth Science and the paper's senior author. The main reason this assumption has lasted is that we haven't had any well-preserved fossil bird palettes from the period when modern birds originated. And so Benito decided to take a new look at the fossil at the beginning of the night, COVID-19 lockdown. During the early days of the lockdown, uh, he decided to uh, try again. The earlier descriptions of the fossil just didn't make sense. There was a bone I was really puzzled by. I couldn't see how what was first described as a shoulder bone could actually be a shoulder bone, he said. It was my first in-person interaction in months. Juan and I had a socially distanced outdoor meeting, and he passed the mystery fossil bone to me, said Field, who is also the curator of ornithology at Cambridge's Museum of Zoology. I couldn't see it wasn't a shoulder bone. I could see it wasn't a shoulder bone, but there was something familiar about it. Then we realized we'd seen a similar bone before in a turkey skull, said Benito. And because of the research we do at Cambridge, we happen to have things like turkey skulls in our labs. So we brought out one and the two bones were almost identical. Traditionally, two of the key characteristics that are used to categorize modern birds from dinosaur ancestors are a toothless beak and a mobile upper jaw. But Genavis vinylendens Phenolidens has teeth, but also a mobile jaw structure. Using geometric analyses, we were able to show that the shape of the fossil palate bone was extremely similar to those of living chickens and ducks, said Pei Chen Kuo, a co-author of the study. Surprisingly, the bird palate bones that are the least similar to that of Genovis are from ostriches and their kings, added co-author Clara Widrig, both of both who are PhD students in Field's lab. 
Evolution doesn't happen in a straight line, said Field. This fossil shows that the mobile beak, a condition we had always thought postdated the origin of modern birds, actually evolved before modern birds existed. We've been completely backwards in our assumptions of how the modern bird skull evolved for well over a century. Now, this doesn't mean a total restructuring of the bird family tree, but it does mean that we have to reevaluate our understanding of the evolution of a key feature of birds. Genovis was a large bird around the size of a modern vulture and uh, unfortunately did not survive the mass extinction. Smaller birds like the wonder chicken identified by the lab in 2020 would have been able to make it through because they were smaller and needed less food. Okay, that is pretty interesting and cool. And again, uh, always science is always agile and interested in uh, adapting to new information. All right, let's uh, finish tonight with archaeology. And so... The first thing is that a mural that had been lost for over a hundred years has been rediscovered in northern Peru. The mural was known from black and white photos, but its location was not noted and was not rediscovered until very recently. The original picture was taken in 1916 by the German ethnologist Hans Heinrich Brüning. But being a man of his time, he found nothing of interest to steal or uh, appropriate, and so he did not follow up at the site. It's an exceptional discovery, first of all, because it is rare to unearth wall paintings of such quality in pre-Columbian archaeology, said Sam Gavami, the Swiss archaeologist who led excavations that uncovered the mural in October. Gavami spent the last four years looking for the mural with a team of Peruvian students. And once rediscovered, once it was rediscovered, it required a long set of negotiations with the landowners to uncover the mural, which had long since been overgrown. Now, the mural is possibly around a thousand years old and comes from the pre-Columbian Moche civilization which occupied the area between the 1st and 8th centuries. The Moche's mythology centered around the moon, the rain, iguanas, and spiders. The composition of this painting is unique in the history of mural art in pre-Hispanic Peru, noted Gavami. Now, the fresco forms part of the Huaca Pintada temple and is almost a 100 feet long, with images in blue, brown, red, white, and mustard yellow. And the paint has been remarkably well-preserved. One section shows a procession of warriors moving towards a bird-like deity. The mural's figures appear to be inspired by the idea of a sacred hierarchy built around a cult of ancestors and their intimate links with the forces of nature, said Gavami. Now, it will take some time for the full message of the mural to be deciphered, but Gavami suggests it could be interpreted as a metaphorical image of the political and religious order of the region's ancient inhabitants. Now, an interesting feature of the mural is that it is actually 
combined, it has combined styles and elements from both the Moche and the Lambayeque, who lived on Peru's north coast between 900 and 1350 AD. So that is very cool. And hopefully uh, they will be able to uh, figure out more about it and most importantly, preserve it. Okay, let's finish up tonight with a uh, description of some really cool facts about a shipwreck. And so this shipwreck was first found in 1982 off the eastern shores of Uluburun in Turkey. This late Bronze Age shipwreck was loaded with tons of rare metals when it sank into the Mediterranean Sea more than 2,000 years ago. Michael Fricetti, professor of archaeology in arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis, and his team found that around one-third of the tin found on the ship was mined by small communities of highland pastoralists in present-day Uzbekistan in Central Asia. Now, the tin was headed for the Mediterranean in order to be used to create bronze. Writing in Science Advances, the researchers explained how advances in geochemical analyses allowed them to determine with high certainty that some of the tin came from a prehistoric mine in Uzbekistan more than 2,000 miles from Haifa, where the ship was loaded with its cargo. Initially, this seemed quite fantastic because the mining regions of Central Asia were far from a major industrial center or any kind of empire, and the terrain between the two places was rugged and hard to navigate with tons of heavy metal. And so a team was brought together to solve the problem. It appears these local miners have had access to a vast international network and, through overland trade and other forms of connectivity, were able to pass this all-important commodity all the way to the Mediterranean, said Fricetti. It's quite amazing to learn that a culturally diverse, multi-regional, and multi-vector system of trade underpinned Eurasian tin exchange during the late Bronze Age. Now, one of the most fascinating aspects is the small-scale nature of these mining operations, which would have been based on local communities or free laborers who negotiated this exchange without the control of kings, emperors, or other governmental constraints. To put it in perspective, this would be the trade equivalent of the entire United States sourcing its energy needs from small backyard oil rigs in central Kansas, he said. Now, the idea of using tin isotopes to determine the origins of metals in archaeological artifacts was first proposed in the mid-1990s, but the, but the science was not yet precise enough to get specific answers, notes Wayne Powell, professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Brooklyn College and a lead author of the study. Over the past couple of decades, scientists have collected information about the isotopic composition of tin ore deposited around the world, their ranges and overlaps, and the natural mechanisms by which isotopic compositions were imparted to casserites when it formed. Powell said, We remain in the early stages of such study. I expect that in future years, this ore deposit database will become quite robust, like that of lead isotopes today, and the method will be used routinely. 
Now, it turns out that Aslahan Kenner, a research affiliate at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at New York University and a professor emerita of archaeology at the University of Chicago, worked on the subject back in the 1990s. And that one looked at lead isotopes, which are more well-known, in the metals of the wreck. Even back then, the signs pointed towards uh, the Kestel mine in Turkey's Taurus Mountains, but also a place in Central Asia. But this was shrugged off since analysis was measuring trace lead and not targeting the origin of the tin, said Jenner, who is a co-author of the present study. Jenner was also the first to find tin in Turkey in the 1980s, surprising the scholarly community who hadn't realized it was there. Now it's clear that a third of the tin came from the Musistan mine in Uzbekistan and and again, the remains from the Kestel. Now, the Kestel mine would have been under the control of the Hittites, which were a global power at the time. Now, by 1500 BC, bronze was the height of technology in Eurasia and was used for all sorts of items, from weaponry and luxury items to tools and utensils. Bronze is primarily composed of copper and tin. Copper is fairly easy to find, but tin is much rarer. Finding tin was a big problem for prehistoric states, and thus the big question was how these major Bronze Age empires were fueling their vast demand for bronze, given the lengths and pains to acquire tin as such a rare commodity. Researchers have tried to explain this for decades, Frischetti said. The Illumbrum shipwreck must have been a devastating loss. The ship contained enough copper and tin to produce 11 metric tons of the highest quality bronze, this which would have been enough to furnish 5,000 soldiers with swords with with, uh, bronze to spare. The current findings illustrate a sophisticated international trade operation that included regional operatives and socially diverse participants who produced and traded essential hard earth commodities through the late Bronze Age political economy from Central Asia to the Mediterranean, Frischetti said. Now, this research shows the importance of supply lines, even in the ancient world, something that we've definitely been uh, dealing with in the last few years. And it also helps us with another line of research into connections between different parts of the classical world. Kingdoms rose and fell, climactic conditions shifted, and new people migrated across Eurasia potentially disrupting or redistributing access to tin, which was essential for both weapons and agricultural tools, Powell said. Using tin isotopes, we can look across each of these archaeologically evident disruptions in society and see connections were severed, maintained, or redefined. We already have DNA analysis to show relational connections, pottery, funerary practices, etc., illustrate the transmission and cognitivity of ideas. Now with tin isotopes, we can document the connectivity of long-distance trade networks and their sustainability. So that is pretty exciting. 
And again, it is a yet another uh, reminder that ancient people did a lot of the things that we take for granted in the modern world. And uh, there was definitely a lot more connection between people in the ancient world than we tend to think about. Um, I think we often think about the stereotype of the uh, quote unquote dark ages where peasants were tied to land and never went anywhere and never met anyone outside of their village. But uh, for much of human history, humans have been doing what they do best, which is interacting and forming bonds and uh, forming connections and trading and uh, intermarrying and all sorts of things across uh, the continents. And um, yeah, it is very cool. But that is all of the time we have for tonight. So uh, I hope that you have a good week and uh, all things uh, working properly. I will be back next week with more evidence-based radio. Thanks for listening. Evidence-based radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.